All right. Go ahead and open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, uh, verses 35 through 45. That is Mark 10, 35 through 45. We are back into our study of Mark's Gospel, and I see we have a handful of visitors, just to let you all know what we do here. Generally speaking, we pick a book of the Bible, and then we walk through it verse by verse, chapter by chapter, till we get to the end. Then we pick a new book, and we keep going through. So that's, that's generally how we do it. We stop here and there to address other topics. But you've caught us, uh, well, we've been in Mark's Gospel for like three years because we keep taking breaks. So we've been here for a while, and we're glad that you joined with us. But tonight we're going to be looking at our Lord Jesus' teaching on true greatness. And my plan, just so you all know, Lord willing, my plan is to look at these 11 verses together this evening and then circle back next week and look at verse 45 by itself. So I am going to address verse 45 this evening, um, but I want to say more uh, than this particular sermon will allow. Um, But again, that's my plan. But in this text, Mark 10, verses 35 through 45, we return once again to the subject of true greatness in the kingdom of God. You'll remember that this topic was addressed by Jesus back in chapter 9, verses 33 through 37. And in that passage, in Mark 9, there was a dispute among the disciples concerning the question, who is the greatest? They were arguing with each other. And our Lord taught them that to be great in the kingdom of God, you must be a servant of all. That you must be a servant to your brothers and sisters in the church. That you must be a servant to the lowest and the least if you want to be considered great by God. And in our passage this evening, we run into basically the exact same teaching from Jesus. Except, this time, the teaching is heightened because Jesus explicitly uses himself as the great example of serving others. In this text, we come to one of the most famous sayings of Jesus Christ, and it is arguably the greatest theme in Mark's gospel. And it's verse 45, and in that verse our Lord says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. All over this text, the humility and servant heart of our Lord Jesus shines brightly. And Jesus intends us to see him here as the great servant of the Lord that Isaiah spoke of. This great suffering servant who serves God and serves the people of God. He intends us to see him as this servant. And in seeing him, In seeing him make himself low and a servant of all, he intends us to imitate him. Our Lord intends us to become servants because everyone in his kingdom is a servant. In this text, our Lord Jesus will drive out our arrogance. He'll drive out our pride. And he will teach us that true greatness in his eyes, in the eyes of God, in his kingdom, True greatness is servanthood. So may God grant us the humility to receive this word and be changed by it. But with that said, now if you would and are able, please stand with me for the reading of the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God. Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? 
And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we come before you now in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our mediator. And we ask that for his sake, you would bless us this evening. Please, make us receptive to the word preached. Grant us repentance where we need to repent. Help us to see the sinfulness of selfishness. Help us to see the beauty of our Lord Jesus in his serving and saving sinners. And as we behold him, we pray that you would change us. Change our hearts and make us more like him. Glorify yourself, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now, our text begins with a request from two of Jesus' disciples, the brothers, James and John. I'll read verse 35 again. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now, I want to mention here that in the parallel account in Matthew 20, I believe it's verses 20 through 28, Matthew records for us that the mother of James and John came to Jesus and asked him this question. And... Because Matthew and Mark differ slightly in their accounts, unbelievers like to claim that this is a contradiction. But that is not the case. Right? There are two possibilities for what happened here that I just want to address real quick. Uh, first, in that day, and many of you already know this, in that day there was a principle that the representative of a person counts as the person himself. Right? You guys are familiar with this is how apostleship works. Right? The apostles, whenever they write something to the churches... Right? Whenever the apostles spoke authoritatively as apostles, you could say, Jesus said that. Why? Because the apostles were sent on behalf of Jesus and spoke on Jesus' behalf to the churches. Right? So again, there's this principle that the representative of a person counts as the person. So that's what could have been going on here. Mark says that James and John asked this question because their mother represented them when she asked the question as their representative. So that could be going on here. Second, the other possibility is that their mother spoke first on their behalf, and then James and John reiterated the request themselves. So their mother approached Jesus, asked the question, and then James and John stepped up and said, yeah, that's, that's what we want. Right? So they, she makes the request, then they make the request. And if that's the case, then Matthew just gives us a more robust account of what happened, and Mark gives us the shorter version, as Mark tends to do with everything. Uh, but know this, 
I think it's the second one. Uh, but know this, no matter which option is the right one, there is no contradiction here. Right? Unbelievers are always looking for contradictions, and if you're, if you're looking for them, you will find alleged contradictions because the unbeliever has no desire to harmonize Scripture because they're looking for stupid reasons to not believe the Word of God. I'm not saying that unbelievers are stupid. I'm saying the reasons that they'll put up claiming contradictions are often stupid. Um, so regardless of which option you want to take, the point is that in one way or another, James and John approached Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now, right off the bat, that's childish, right? Isn't it? It's pretty childish. James and John know that in light of Jesus' past teaching on humility, where he, 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 he was just really direct with the disciples on the fact that they were acting foolish, that James and John know that in light of Christ's past teaching about humility and the kingdom of God, they know that their request is probably not going to be acceptable to Jesus. And so they start off by saying, Jesus, say yes first, and then we'll tell you what we want you to do. Right? It's actually appropriate that the children are all with us this evening. Kids do this, don't they? Right? Will you do something for me, Dad? What do you want? Right? Like kids are just saying they want you to say yes first, so then they've kind of like got you locked in. So whenever they tell you what they want you to do after, you're stuck. Right? Or if you're like me and you got in trouble a lot, Mom, I need to tell you something, but promise me you won't get mad. Well, how are you supposed to promise that you're not going to get mad if you don't know what the idiot did? And I am the idiot in that situation, right? So you guys get what I'm saying. This is very immature. Little kids do this with their parents. Say yes, and then we'll tell you what we want. The disciples are showing their immaturity before they even make the request. More than that, as I mentioned earlier, in Matthew chapter 20, Matthew tells us that they brought their mother along with them to make the request first. And they did this because, in all likelihood, whenever you seek to harmonize the, God, the four gospel accounts at the cross of Christ and at his resurrection, when you harmonize them, we see that in all likelihood, their mother, whose name was Salome, is Mary's sister. That's Jesus' aunt, right? So they bring, they're Jesus' cousins. They bring Jesus' aunt in to try to put pressure on him to do what they're asking, right? So again, this is just immaturity from the two brothers. They're asking Jesus to write them a blank check for whatever they want, and then they'll fill it in after he gives it to them. And again, it's because they know that they shouldn't be making this request to begin with because it goes against what Jesus has already taught about his kingdom. I know I haven't even gotten into the request, but just letting you know on the front end, their request is full of pride, and it's full of selfishness, and it's full of a desire to rule over others and be served. But Jesus doesn't fall for it. He's not dumb. Rejoice, Christian. Your Savior is not a fool. Verse 36, and he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? He's too smart to commit himself to granting a request that hasn't been made yet. Real quick, there's a freebie. Imitate that. Only a fool commits themselves to something before they know what they're committing themselves to. We would all do very well in this day to remember that. Right? So Jesus isn't being foolish here. He says, what do you want? But now we come to the request of the brothers. Verse 37. And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. There it is. There's the request. They want Jesus to give them the two highest positions in the kingdom. The two highest positions below him, the king. To sit at your right hand is the second highest. To sit at your left hand is the third highest. 
They want the two greatest positions of prestige and power and honor and glory. They want to be second only to Jesus in terms of their authority and greatness. In other words, they're asking Jesus to promise them that when he comes into his kingdom, that they will be the most prominent of all citizens. And remember, they're still thinking mainly in earthly terms. They still think that Jesus is going to set up an earthly kingdom in Jerusalem. That's what they're expecting. They're thinking about Jesus' glory, his rule and his reign in his kingdom. They're thinking of his glory in political terms, not spiritual ones. They're expecting that even though Jesus has just finished predicting his death in verses 32 through 34, they're still thinking that there is going to be some kind of a geopolitical kingdom established. And in light of their misguided expectations of Jesus' kingdom, you want to give them benefit of the doubt, or not benefit of the doubt, give them some credit here. In light of their misguided expectations, their request kind of makes sense. It kind of does. They know that Jesus has spoken of his death, but he's also spoken of his resurrection. That's going to happen very, very soon in Jerusalem. In a matter of days, this stuff's going to happen, and they know that. Jesus has told them that. And they probably thought, this is my opinion, they probably thought that Jesus was speaking in metaphorical language. There's going to be great suffering, maybe even a war of some kind. There's going to be death followed by great victory, a resurrection of sorts. There's going to be great suffering followed by a great victory, and they're right. That is what's going to happen, just not in earthly political terms. But they were probably thinking to themselves, well, it's now or never. Jesus is about to establish his kingdom. We need to try to secure our places of prominence before everything starts happening. And if we get Jesus to promise us high positions right now, then we're set in the future. But regardless of all the background motivation behind this request, the context makes itself very clear that their desires were selfish and self-centered. Again, they wanted to sit at the right and left hand of Jesus. And in earthly kingdoms, these positions at the right and left hand of the king would guarantee that you would have many servants. That there would be many, many people. Everyone but the king would be under you. In an earthly kingdom, these positions would have them held in high esteem by all, even feared to some degree or another. In an earthly kingdom, these positions would, would, would mean that they would be able to give commands and others must obey them. In an earthly kingdom, they would be over all and served by everyone except for the king himself. They want the high positions. They want to be honored, served, and obeyed by everyone. And real quick, notice this. They don't ask for Jesus to grant this to Peter and Andrew, do they? They don't ask for Jesus to grant this to Matthew and Bartholomew. They ask this for themselves. They ask this for themselves. They're thinking only about themselves. This is selfish ambition. They're self-centered. They're trying to climb the ladder of success and everyone else fend for themselves. They want to be the greatest and the most prominent. Brothers and sisters, this is the human heart on display. We don't naturally want to serve. We would rather be served. We don't like to obey others. We would rather be obeyed. 
We don't like rules given to us. We would rather make the rules ourselves. We don't like to think of others, but we love to think about ourselves. We don't like to esteem others more highly than ourselves, but we love it whenever other people honor and speak our praises. We are, by nature, selfish sinners. We're selfish. Every one of us, to a man, in the deepest part of your heart, even if on the outside you don't show it very often, in the deepest part of your heart, everyone in here is selfish to one degree or another. And spoiler alert, that does not fly in the kingdom of God. It doesn't fly. But our Lord then replies to this selfish request. Verse 38, Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They don't realize what they're asking for. First, they don't realize yet that Jesus' kingdom isn't an earthly temporal kingdom. Right? They, they don't realize yet that his kingdom is spiritual, that it's not of this world. And they won't realize that until after his ascension. Even in the book of Acts in chapter 1, will you now restore the kingdom to Israel? They won't understand that his kingdom is spiritual until after his ascension. But even more than that, they don't realize what it takes to be great in his kingdom. And that's why Jesus mentions a cup and a baptism in this verse. Jesus asks them if they're able to drink the cup that he drinks. And the language of drinking a cup is, is very Jewish, right? It has a lot of ties to the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, the cup can refer, it can refer to a cup of blessing, like Psalm 23, verse 5. You guys are familiar with that. My cup overflows. But most often, when the cup is spoken of in the Old Testament, it's a cup of suffering. It's a cup of wrath. Jeremiah 25, 15 Thus Yahweh, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hands this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. Or Isaiah 51, 17. Wake yourself. Wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. So the cup Jesus refers to here is a cup of suffering. For Jesus himself, it's the cup of suffering the wrath of God on behalf of sinners. As he prayed in Gethsemane, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. This is the cup of suffering God's wrath on behalf of sinners. Jesus is the greatest in the kingdom, and he will undergo the most severe suffering for the sake of the people of his kingdom. He will, as the theologian once said, he will take the cup of God's wrath and drain it down to the dregs. He will drink all of God's wrath as a substitute for his people on the cross. That's his cup. But the language that the disciples would have understood here is the language of suffering. They didn't understand yet, and they wouldn't understand until after the fact. They didn't yet understand what Christ's suffering would accomplish for sinners. So what they're hearing is this language of just general suffering when you drink of the cup. And Jesus also refers to a baptism. No disrespect to our Presbyterian friends, but literally he refers to an immersion here. That's what baptizo means. It's to be plunged under something. It's to be submerged under something. And being baptized or being immersed was, some, was sometimes used as a figure of speech in that day to refer to being metaphorically plunged into suffering. 
to be plunged into pain. In the context, taken beside the cup of suffering and wrath, it means here to be immersed in suffering. Head to toe. Suffering all around you. And this also has a reference to Jesus being plunged under the judgment waters of the wrath of God and his cross. Where he would bear the sins of his people and the judgment of God in their place. But again, the disciples don't fully understand that. They, they would have just heard references to general sufferings. So then, in response to the request, I said all that to say this, in response to the request to have the highest positions in the kingdom, in response to that, our Lord says, you don't understand what you're asking for. Are you able to undergo the kind of suffering that I'm about to endure? And I think what he's saying to them is, are you able to suffer for my sake? And I think that what Jesus is saying here is that in order to be great in the kingdom of God, you will have to suffer first. It's not all glory. There must first come a cross of some kind. Suffering for Christ's sake is part of the path to greatness. So then, to desire to be greatest in a roundabout way is to desire to suffer for Christ. To want to be the greatest is, is to want to follow Jesus wherever he might lead you, and he very well may lead you to the most awful sufferings and even your own martyrdom. And James and John, they just didn't realize what they were asking for. They were thinking only of glory. They weren't considering what it costs in order to be the greatest in Christ's kingdom. And real quick, a quick note here. Even though the cost is great, we should still desire to be great in Jesus' kingdom. You should still have the desire, but we just need to be aware of the cost of true greatness. You shouldn't want to be the worst disciple, even if you know it takes suffering to be a truly great disciple. You should still want to be a great disciple because you love the king. Just be aware of what it takes to be great in his kingdom. It will cost us everything, maybe even our lives, to be truly great in the kingdom. But now we come to the arrogant reply, verse 39. And they said to him, we are able. We're able. They're naive. They're naive here. If they truly thought about what Jesus was saying about suffering, they would have mentioned help and grace. They would have said something like, we are able if you will help us, Jesus. We are willing to suffer if you'll give us the grace to endure. But no, they're still so focused on glory and prestige and prominence that they're blind to what Jesus is saying that it will cost. And so they arrogantly say, and rather quickly, they say, we can do it. We're able to suffer for your sake. And I think the subtext of this is we're able to suffer as long as you give us the highest places in your kingdom. As long as we get the highest places when everything's said and done. And again, and they're thinking an earthly kingdom. They're not thinking about having to die. So again, they're solely focused on what they believe that they will gain in this earthly kingdom having positions of prominence. They're focused on being served by others in the end, and so they're willing to suffer for a short time in order to get this level of glory. And now we come to Jesus' response. Verse 39, And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. 
in the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Jesus tells them that indeed both of them will suffer. Now we need to be clear here. We need to interpret darker passages of Scripture by clearer passages of Scripture. Their suffering will not be the same as Jesus' suffering. Only Jesus suffered as a substitute for sinners. Only Jesus died in order to save sinners. Only Jesus can do that as the God-man and only mediator between God and men. But what Jesus is saying is that both of them will suffer in a similar manner to him. They will both be plunged under pain and drink the bitter cup of suffering. And I want you to see this. This is a prophecy fulfilled in the pages of Scripture. Both James and John lived lives of suffering for Christ's sake. In Acts chapter 12, verse 2, we read that James was killed by King Herod with the sword. He drank the cup, and he died a martyr. He died for Christ's sake. Similarly, we read in Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, that John was exiled to the island of Patmos for Christ's sake. And in addition to that, if church tradition is to be believed, John was boiled in oil, and he lived. He's actually the only apostle to die of old age. But the point is, both James and John drank the cup and underwent the baptism that Jesus spoke of here. They both would go on to suffer greatly for Christ's sake. So Jesus says, you will drink the cup, you will be baptized. But then he tells them that even though they would indeed suffer for him, that their position in the kingdom is ultimately left up to the Father. It's for whom it has been prepared. Or as Matthew 20 tells us, for whom it has been prepared by my Father. In Jesus' humanity, he humbly submits such decisions to God the Father. And I believe that this is a lesson to James and John. Here's, all, here's how all this ties into what we're getting ready to look at in the following verses. So you're probably wondering, what does this have to do with the Son of Man came to serve? I think here's the tie-in. Jesus is teaching James and John to stop thinking about your own prominence and just follow him wherever he takes you. I think that's what his point is here. That all disciples are to follow Jesus into suffering if that's where he leads. And we're to strive for greatness in that way, knowing what it will cost us, but, but leaving the rewards and places of prominence to God to give to us. All Christians should recognize that the cost of discipleship and true greatness is high, but go anyway. And go entrusting our reward to the Father who has prepared it beforehand. Or to say it maybe another way, I think the lesson so far is that Jesus' disciples should stop worrying about prominence and just follow Jesus. Leave the rest to God. Leave the rewarding to God. Leave the bestowing of glory to God because he will justly render to each disciple what they should receive. Just follow him. But after this conversation with Jesus and the two brothers, the other disciples get angry. Verse 41. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. The ten other disciples heard what James and John asked Jesus, and they were mad about it. They were angry. And I don't think that they were mad because James and John were so arrogant, and I can't believe you made such an ungodly request to Jesus. I don't think that that's what's happening here. Remember back in chapter 9, all 12 of them were arguing about who was the greatest. And after this incident, 
uh, you'll see them arguing over who was the greatest right before the Last Supper. None of them would wash anyone's feet because it was all beneath them. Right? So this kind of arrogance and selfishness was a problem for all 12 disciples. So in light of that, I think that the other 10 were angry at James and John because the brothers beat them to the punch. <laughs> they asked Jesus first. And so the other 10 are angry because they thought their own positions of prominence in the kingdom were being threatened because Jesus' earthly cousins beat them to asking for the highest positions. They all wanted to be the greatest. They all wanted to be served. They all wanted to be in places of authority. They all wanted to be esteemed and have others move out of the way for them. And they all wanted to be obeyed. They all wanted the glory. They all wanted what James and John asked for. The only difference is that James and John had the guts to approach Jesus and ask for it. They're all only thinking about themselves and how to make themselves greater than the rest. This is very human. This is very, when I say human, I don't mean that positively, right? This is very earthly. It's very fleshly. They're after the highest positions, all of them, to a man. And Jesus is about to teach them something that they don't understand. He's about to teach them about humility and service. And being the brilliant teacher that he is, in order to teach them something that they don't understand, he begins with something that they do understand. Verse 42, And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Jesus says, you know how the world works. You know how this works. You know how the Gentiles, remember Jesus is speaking to a Jewish audience here, the, the, the 12 disciples. The Gentiles means the unbelievers. You know how the unbelievers, those who are not in my kingdom, you know how they do things in the world. In the kingdoms of the world, rulers lord their authority over others. They exercise authority over others. And that's meant to be taken negatively here. What that means is the rulers of earthly kingdoms tend to throw their weight around. That's what people in authority in the world do. Earthly kings tend to be tyrant kings. Amen? Earthly kings tend to be tyrant kings. They're domineering. They demand their own way. They make unreasonable mandates. Earthly rulers expect to be served by every single person around them. Earthly governors, presidents, kings, prime ministers, and all the rest do not consider themselves servants. They, in our country, people may talk, I'm a civil servant. Yeah, right. Yeah, right, you view yourself that way. Very few people that are willing to say that they're a civil servant actually thinks that they are here to serve the people. Very few think that way. Rather, they want to be served by others, and they are served by others. The rulers of this world think very highly of themselves, and they demand that everyone recognize their greatness and bow down to them. That's how it is. Is it not? This, that's how it is. I don't need to expound on this very much, right? Again, we see this every day. If you give someone even just a little authority, and we see this even in the church sometimes, sadly. You, you put someone in authority over one thing, even if it's small, and they tend to be domineering toward all who are under them in rank. Those in places of prominence tend to be domineering 
And we see this in our we see this in our workplaces. We see it on a local level. We especially see it on a national level in our government. Again, this is self-evident. This is how the unbelieving world around us operates. The rulers lord their authority and expect to be served by everyone. But then our Lord says something that upends that whole way of thinking. Verse 43, but it shall not be so among you. It shall not. This is not how things are going to go amongst his church. This is not how disciples will behave. What I thought was interesting is more literally, and I think the, the New American Standard Bible says this, it is not so among you. It is not so among you. What Jesus is saying is that his kingdom doesn't operate like that now, and it will never operate like that. It's not like his kingdom was operating like that right then, but one day it shall not be that way. He says, this is not how my kingdom goes. It is not that way among you. If someone tries to lord authority and expects others to serve them, they are living at odds with the principles of his kingdom. Jesus' kingdom is not at all like the kingdoms of the world. Instead of behaving like the unbelieving world with regard to greatness, Jesus says this, verse 43, But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. If you want to be great in Christ's kingdom, if you want to be great in the eyes of your Lord Jesus, if you want to be great in the eyes of God our Father, then you must be a servant and a slave of all. And a servant here refers to a common house servant, someone who waits on tables, someone who does menial tasks. The, the, the word's diakonos. It's the word we get deacon from. Someone who does basic tasks in order to serve other people. And a slave, mentioned, mentioned after service, servant of other and a slave of all. A slave is lower than a servant. A slave is lower than a servant. A slave doesn't do his own will at all, but rather does the will of the one who owns him. And Jesus tells us that we are to reckon ourselves as servants and slaves to everyone, to all. Servants and slaves don't work for themselves, do they? Everything they do is for someone else, period. Everything they do is for someone else. That's the whole reason that a servant or a slave exists as such. It is to do for others. They live to serve. In the same way, Jesus says that the disciple is to consider himself or herself to live to do good for others around them. The disciple is to live each day in service to others in the name of our Lord Jesus. We are not to busy ourselves with thoughts of how to be great or how to gain positions of prominence for the sake of being served, but rather we are to busy ourselves with the good of others. Our thoughts each day are to be consumed with the question, how might I be of help to someone else? How can I bless someone today? What can I do for another today? And notice again, Jesus says, slave of all. Nobody is too low to be served. 
and no task is beneath you. You serve the one who cannot help you climb up the ladder of success. You serve the one who needs serving. It's that simple. Whoever it may be, even if you gain nothing from it in return, and I would go so far as to say, especially if you gain nothing from it in this life. You don't serve in expectation to be served in return. And how do I know that? Because Jesus says here, you serve like a slave. And just real quick, and this, this hits my own heart. Everyone, we read this text and say, I want to be a servant until someone treats you like one. May God help us all. And I mean that with sincerity. We all say, yeah, Jesus said that. I want to be a slave until someone treats you like a slave. But he says we are to serve like slaves, expecting nothing in return from those for whom you are serving, expecting no payment from them, no tit for tat, no back and forth, no quid pro quo, expecting nothing. You serve for the sake of doing good for another. That, says Jesus, is true greatness in his sight. And I confess to you now that I don't have much more to say about these verses so far. Because they are so simple. And they are so self-explanatory. But I feel the need to say more. And maybe you expect me to say more because it is so hard. Because it's hard. Because it goes against our selfish, self-centered nature as sinners. So you expect me to say something more to you. But honestly, it's really simple. It's really simple. Do you want to be great? Do you care about what Jesus thinks? If yes, then serve others. Use your abilities. Use your authority. Use your power. Use your resources. Use your time. Use your gifting. Whatever God has given to you, use it to be a blessing and a servant to somebody else. That's the message of Jesus in this text. You do that and you will be esteemed as great in the eyes of your master. Serve others and God will count you as great in his kingdom. And listen, let's keep it real here. It's often the simplest messages of scripture that we find the hardest. And I don't know if it was G.K. Chesterton or who it was. He said, it's not the hard parts of the Bible that I find like difficult. It's the parts that I understand. It's the simplest messages that we often find the hardest, and we find them difficult, or we pretend, if you're, if you're trying to be intellectual, we pretend to not understand, right? Or, or we expect there to be some deeper meaning because they challenge us so straightforwardly at the most basic level. But know this, our Lord is king of an upside-down kingdom. He's king of an upside-down kingdom. Because in his kingdom, the greatest are the servants. And the ones who expect to be served are less than nothing. It's an upside-down kingdom. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He's already given us one reason to serve others. right? That's to be great in the kingdom. If you want to be great, then serve others. But then he goes on to give another reason. It's even greater than that. Verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. 
came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, right, we, we, we hear that so often, right? We've heard, especially if you've been a Christian for a while, you grew up in the church, you, we've heard this verse a lot, but try to hear it with fresh ears. This is an explanatory statement. The first word, for. For the Son of Man. It's explanatory. So why should we serve others? He's giving us a reason. Why should we serve others? Why is it that servants and slaves are the greatest in his kingdom? Because even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Think about the reasoning here. It's very simple, but this, this, this made me just rethink everything this past week. Think about this. The king is the greatest person in the kingdom. Period. And Jesus is the king. That's what this phrase, son of man, for even the son of man. The son of man refers us back to Daniel chapter 7, where we read about this son of man who's given an eternal kingdom and authority and glory and dominion that all the nations of the world would worship him. And Jesus says that he, who is that very same son of man, the king, came not to be served, but to serve. Greatness in the kingdom is being a servant because the king of the kingdom came first and made himself a servant for all in his kingdom. So then, if you want to be great in the kingdom, you must be like the king who is the greatest. And the king is a servant king. That's the reasoning of this verse. Jesus served first. The king established his kingdom by serving. And he served how? By giving his life as a ransom for many. He served by going to a cross in the place of his people. He served by undergoing the unmitigated wrath of God as a substitute for his people. He served us by dying for us. By, by taking that cup of the wrath of God and draining it down to its dregs. Why? So that we would be saved. So that all of the wrath that hung against us because of our sins would be taken away because he has taken it for us. He lowered himself and became a servant for our good. So that we might benefit. Listen, we who did not deserve his service, we who cannot pay him back, you can't. God help you if you think that your obedience is paying him back. It's not. He did this for us who cannot give him anything that he is already, not already due as the eternal son of God. He served us by giving himself as a ransom for us to buy us back from our sins and the wrath of God. He served us, and through his service, he brought us into his kingdom. Our king served us first. So it is no wonder that true greatness is acting like the king and serving others. Why should you serve? For even the Son of Man served. Even him. That underlines it, doesn't it? For even the king served the example of our Lord Jesus as a suffering servant it confronts our arrogance and our refusal to abase ourselves 
our refusal to make ourselves low. It confronts that. Consider this, again, and I know that I keep saying the same thing over and over, but it's to make the point here because we need to hear it. Consider this. He is your Lord, and he came to serve you. He is, Lord means he is objectively higher than you. He is superior to you in literally every way. He is greater than you and me beyond our wildest imagination, and he served us. He served us to the point of death in order to do us eternal good by saving our souls. So how then will we not serve others? Surely we do not think that we are greater than our Lord. And to go a bit further, we see something absolutely beautiful and glorious about the character of our Lord that should inspire us to imitate him. You ready? He's not a hypocrite. He's not a hypocrite. He's not the kind of king who calls us to do that which, is he, that which he is not willing to do. He calls us to serve because he served first. But the kicker is that no matter how much serving we do in this life, he outdoes us. We can do all manner of good for all kinds of people, but we can never save another person from hell. But our Lord served us by saving us from our sins. So I want you to see this as you consider this commandment to serve others. He does that which he commands Unlike so many false religious leaders throughout the ages, our king is the true God who practiced what he preached. And he did so perfectly and extravagantly. So surely we can attempt to imitate such a good king. Brothers and sisters, I submit to you that if we, with the eye of faith, see what Jesus says in verse 45, it will change us. Or he would not have given this to be the reasoning. If we see verse 45, we will be changed. If we see with the eye of faith the Son of God hanging on a tree, serving sinners by dying, serving you and me by dying for us, that will change us. And it will change us into servants. It will humble us. It will change us from the inside out. It will make us servants of all because we have seen with faith how our Lord made himself a servant first. So for application then, I just want to read two verses to you for your meditation and then say one final thing. The first, 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Philippians 2, 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Brothers and sisters, many say that they want to do something great for God. But it seems often like very few want to actually be great according to God. A 
I'll say that again. Many say they want to do something great for God, but it often seems like few want to actually be great according to God. Few want to clean the toilet. Few want to give their wife a break and watch their children so that she can rest. Few want to visit the sick. Few want to make the awkward phone call to the hurting. Few want to get to know the homeless person who approaches for help. Few want to earnestly pray for their brothers and sisters. Few want to serve children. Few want to give their money to the poor. Few want to reach out and encourage others. Few want to befriend the stranger and the oddball. Few want to show kindness to the hated. Few want to give their time to help. Few want to give themselves to others. I think you get the idea. True greatness is not done in one great act. It's done in a lifetime of service. It's it's in a lifetime of servanthood like our Lord Jesus lived. True greatness is found in service. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Amen. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it confronts us in our selfishness and it calls us to repent. But God, we thank you that you don't call us to repent so that we might be reconciled to you, but you call us as your people to continually, daily repent because Jesus Christ has already paid our ransom, because he's already served us. And so we need to do nothing to earn favor with you because Christ has accomplished it for us, but you call us to repent that we might be more like him. So God, we pray that seeing Christ crucified for us, that seeing the Son of Man serving us, that we would repent of our selfishness, grant us repentance, and grant us servant hearts like him. Help us to imitate our Lord. Help us to be truly great, even though it may cost much suffering and will indeed require much service. Help us to strive for true greatness according to you and not according to the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.